This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Crunch as Facade. Ben Franklin, Modern Prometheus. Michael Heiser's City. And Skinwalker Ranch. Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about? Hmm, you mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plane something? It's Plane Gia, Robin. The Star Shaman Song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dinorific? I do dare say dinorific. There's the plain Gia core book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the crunch of the psionics rules, the crunch of the grappling rules, the crunch <laughs> of the encumbrance rules, the crunch of the character generation system, the crunch of the tactical positioning system, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into an extra crunchy edition of The Gaming Hut. Uh, because ever since I have been a little tiny uh, gamer playing games, there has always been games that were more crunchy than the games I was playing. And since I started with basic D&D, AD&D was more crunchy, but there was, you know, we heard in whispers, Robin, of games like Chivalry and Sorcery that drown you in rigorous details. And we uh, thought, ooh, do we want rigorous details? And most of us said, not really, but someone did. And, uh, you know, you, you had uh, Rollmaster had a, a big following for a while, especially once it became the backup for the Middle Earth role-playing game. There's always something out there. Now that audience is is very Pathfindery, but I'm sure there's something even crunchier than Pathfinder. Zweihander has got a little bit of crunch in its uh, Warhammer fantasy roleplay universe uh, life. So someone always wants crunch, but as you note, that's not what they always want. Right. So there is an interesting phenomenon where, and certain iterations of basic roleplaying, like the current version of RuneQuest, is also very crunchy, and it's got crunch for everything. And there is an interesting phenomenon where if you ask people, do they want these super crunchy rules? They say yes. In fact, we would like a crunchier rule. We would like this to simulate this interaction of these weapons even more. And we, we really want to get into the detail and, and we want to feel that we're really grounded and we super want to use heavy every duty. column from the GURPS firearms chart. Exactly. But then when you ask people what they're doing at the game table, it's like, well, if you use every single bit of crunch, doesn't that slow your game to a crawl? Because certainly the, the trade-off for crunch is it, it takes longer. You have to mm -hmm. look up stuff in the rules. The more rules there are, the longer it takes to use them. You know, what is happening to your play experience at the table uh, when you're demanding all this crunch? And does everybody in the group really all want this? Because it seems like it's something that appeals to sort of a sector of uh, gamers in the way that they think. And, you know, if... You're all in engineering school together. Yeah, I bet you do all love that stuff. But what really happens at your table? And the answer often is, oh, well, we, we just ignore all of that 
<laughs> especially later in the session. And so then uh, the next question that I would ask is like, if you don't use all of this crunch, why are you playing a super crunchy game? Would you like something more stripped down? Oh, no, no, that's that's a storytelling game. We don't want that. So my question for this segment is, what's going on there with this uh, notional crunch? What do we call this phenomenon? And is it something that as designers we want to uh, cater to with essentially rules that are closet drama? Uh, should we acknowledge <laughs> that it happens and say, this is only the super crunchy thing? Because I think people love crunch also really hate the idea that a rule might be optional, even though in practice, nine out of 10 of the rules in the book are optional for them. I mean, obviously, this is not unique to crunch affiliated gamers. Every gamer group, and I would argue every group, you join a group for a number of complex reasons. It feeds your self-image. It feeds the self-image you're aspiring to be. So maybe you think, I'm a bit of a scatterbrain. I will play this game that is obviously for smart people because look at all the dots and cases in it. But that's not really why you joined. You joined for some part of self-actualization. You didn't join to do the thing. And this is true in churches. It's true in political parties. You know, you don't the, go to reading club to, to read the books. Right. Exactly. You go to reading club for the cookies and to be able to say, oh, I have a reading club on Wednesday. I can't do that which you can do without going to a reading club. I just want to throw that out there. So this is not just gamers and it's not just these gamers that do it. It's a universal human situation where a thing you say you are for some reason of either self-image or image broadcasting does not a thousand percent match with everything that you want to do all the time. And it may have been you used to really love doing full on every rule pathfinder and every source book GURPS, but now You've gotten a, a vibe, you've gotten a rhythm, and you, it was necessary to have all those there to begin with to build trust in the game group so that everyone knew there was not going to be any fighting business. But now that you're all friends together, you sort of nod and a wink, and it's like, well, encumbrance basically balances out. We've all done the math. We don't have to do the math now. Right. But it feels, even though we're not using it, it feels like we have encumbrance. Right. Because we have acknowledged that there is encumbrance, and there, if we wanted to use encumbrance, if... You know, one time out of uh, 20, suddenly encumbrance mattered. Then we could go look at the encumbrance rules. Right. And so I think what's happening here is absolutely a difference between self-conception and what you actually do, uh, between what you aspire to do and think is interesting abstractly and what you really do at the game table. But it's also situational crunch. Yeah. That if the GM can get away with ignoring the rules and no one calls her on it, that's all great. Everybody yeah. in their heads is thinking, this is a great crunchy game that we've mastered. And all of the, the hours that I spent on character generation are all going to pay off because all the little dots and wiggles on my character sheet are all being recognized by the use of the rules by the GM behind the screen that I'm not seeing. And so everything is copacetic. Right. Whereas if I knew that she was freeforming it because she's got a freeform, simple set of rules, then what is happening? What is anchoring us into this experience? And I guess, you know, if the one time out of 20 when it's like, well, can we really cross this river with all of this stuff and all of this armor on? Let's get out the encumbrance rules. It still feels to you like you are paying homage to the detailed level person, not only that you aspire to be, but that 
stimulate your brain, right? You you are right. a crunchy-minded person. You just don't actually really be crunchy-minded all the time, except when you're trying to get the armor across the river. Yeah. I'm going I'm to say a couple of things. First, as someone who has run GURPS, one of the reasons I loved running GURPS is I knew that if it did come up, there was a rule for that. Maybe it doesn't come up. Maybe I can house rule it at the table. Maybe everyone's moving too fast. But if we needed to stop and say exactly how strong is that breeze, we could do it. And that's that's very fun and helpful. And I think it it does actually sort of liberate you to do more freeing stuff. It's like having the safety rope when you're doing uh, free climbing, right? I guess free climbing you do without right. the rope, but you get my point. And then the other thing that I want to sort of go back to is your brief mention of closet rules. And I think that's kind of a brilliant way to think of it because when I take this phenomenon in role-playing games and I move it across the aisle of the convention to war games, you see a very similar sort of phenomenon, but no one ever says, Oh, we're playing free form third Reich. We're playing free form campaign for North Africa. No, when you play those games, we're playing free form Virgin queen. When you play those games, you are playing by the rules because it's literally the point of the game. You don't freeform hockey anyway. Right. I mean, you do if you're kids, but you get my point. But what the equivalent in this universe is, is you buy the big box of here I stand or whatever, and you read the rules and you internalize them and you visualize yourself very much like in closet drama. Ooh, I would love to play that clan of vampire. I would love to play Ottoman Turkey in this game and I can see how I would do it. And that is a kind of fun. Right. And since there's only a hundred other people on the continent who right. own that game and want to play and it. And want to play it and are free all day, Saturday and Sunday, yeah. which is the real, I mean, I have, I am very fortunate to have like three friends that would legitimately play a, a, a two day war game with me, but they, they are friends with lives of their own. Yeah. And so we can't yeah. always you agree, can't agree on, on what those two days, which be. two days they are. But I myself buy very complex hardcore crunchy war games a because i love them as design documents but b yes for a lot of that closet rules as opposed to closet drama sensibility that by enjoying them as a imaginative experience as i read the rules i'm getting a, a good amount of fun not nearly the amount of fun that i would if i actually got greg and we you know played it out but a good amount of fun with those rules just as an experiential document. And I think that a lot of people, I know that people used to buy GURPS books that way. And, you know, you buy GURPS vehicles and you would say, Oh, Cubrits, but you, except my friend Josh would never make a vehicle at GURPS vehicles because it was crazy. People talk, you'd make a vehicle and sort of by eye adjust it to the nine pre-built examples and move on with your life. Right. But it would feel, mm -hmm. even though you weren't really doing it, that you were. Right. That you'd gone, there was something rigorous going on. But for the really important vehicle, for the starship the characters are all traveling in, that's when you turn it over to Josh and say, build that starship and I'd better not see you cheating on those cube roots. And right. he would do so it. So as rules designers, should we acknowledge which <laughs> of our rules are there for their own aesthetic pleasure that they convey and are not necessarily meant for constant use? Is this a mental fiction that we need to continue? And if we look at it, it'll pop and everything will blow up. And uh, what happens when you're the one at the table who either wants the encumbrance rules to be used all the time or uh, wants it to be acknowledged that most of the rules that you spent hours 
working on your character sheet over are not in fact in play. Is this the sort of thing that should never be looked at because it then turns into a monster? I think that as a player is a different question than as a designer. As a player, obviously, if you are not getting the thing that you signed up for, then you should obviously talk to the other players. You should talk to the GM. And if all the other players say, you know, it takes an hour to do grappling. We're just doing strength versus strength. Then if what you are like is I signed up for this game about sumo wrestling because I expected it to take an hour to do grappling, then you need to either suck it up or find a different game group because those are incompatible expectations, just like any other set of expectations. Right. Or can I have Josh do my character sheet? Right. Because exactly. I'm acknowledging, unlike the rest of you, that we're freeforming it. So let him do it. You're, you're, you're talking to a man who has played champions on and off for four years and has never made a champion's character sheet. So I know what we're talking about. But again, part of it is that I feel like if you're having fun at the table, just trust that. That's the real you know, compass. It's not like, oh, I feel like this copy of, of GURPS gun foo is going unused. It's like, are we having fun gun fooing it around in our GURPS game? If we are. Right. There's certainly the danger, though, as a designer that you can create a rule for everything mm-hmm. and then have a lot of players go, oh, that's too much for me. I mm-hmm. would like something lighter. I mean, that is that is the situation. And as a designer, you do find yourself, I assume, in that situation. Um, Knights Black Agents, I think, is as, as you say, Gumshoe began as ridiculously simple and story gamey and streamlined, and is now like, well, there's a die. I don't know about that. You have to add a modifier, and now it's you know seems to have slid more crunchy as the uh, nebulous group of non D and D players has 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 moved away from that. And Nice Black Agents is the crunchiest, I think. Maybe Fall of Delta Green is a little crunchier, but in both those cases, what I'm doing certainly with Fall of Delta Green is. That's designed to welcome people from a relatively crunchy set from Delta Green rules. They may not want to step right off into, you know, quick shock. Uh, No, you just roll once at the end of the combat. Everyone in Delta Green stands up simultaneously and says, not me, and marches out. My my weapon caliber is not taken into account in that. (laughs) How dare you? Yeah. So there's a reason, a design reason to do fall of Delta Green that way. For Knights Black Agents... One of the things that I wanted it to do was to very visibly handle any spy game and the pre-existing material in spy games, your top secret, your James Bond, your uh, Spycraft by Patrick Capera, a wonderful unsung game by and large are fairly crunchy games. And so to respond to those creatively, I felt like it was necessary to put in a little rule. But I also, of course, throughout the books, you know, not just overtly, like every designer does say, you can ignore whichever rules you want at your own table, but I literally give the player permission to turn on and turn off rules for game feel. I feel like that sends the message of Ken, which is do stuff until you're not having fun, then stop doing that. Or rather do stuff until you are having fun, then keep doing that. Right. Which brings us to what do we call this experience at the table that we're not acknowledging happens that happens all the time. And it's happened since the beginning of gaming. And I guess I would call it toggled crunch, Yeah, where you start with the default is that it's very, very crunchy, has a rule for everything, but you in play instinctively, almost, dare I say, freeformly decide whether you need to toggle that crunch on or uh, leave the toggle off. Yeah, or toggle it off and leave it off, which is the thing that you sort of are deciding. Again, maybe you're deciding it formally. Maybe the GM sets it out and says, we're not using the grappling rules. Suck it up. 
or maybe everyone starts playing and they realize grappling takes an hour and they're like, you know, basically we know that it comes out, you know, Monte Carlo 95% to the same thing as strength versus strength would do. Let's do that. And let's give Clem a plus two because her character is, uh, you know, a trained Pencratianist or whatever. And then that basically works out. And that seems like the way that the actual play goes is that you either begin by turning it off or you turn it off, you know, over the time as you re- realize, you know, which of these are load bearing crunch and which of these are just getting in the way of the load bearing crunch or the fun that we're having. And every group is different. That's the point. There's not, you can't just tear out, you know, every other rule in Pathfinder and say, now I've made the game 50% better. Right. That's not how rules work. It's not and, how and game every groups session work. is different, right? right if yeah. you're grappling at the beginning of the three hour slot, that's different than if you're doing it near the end. Yeah. And if the grappling is a core activity that, you know, every, the whole party's future rides on, can you grapple this minotaur? Maybe that is when you break out the crunch and you do all the math because that adds to the fun and the flavor and the spice. And if it doesn't, if it's just, well, we got to get past the minotaur to get to the real fun, you need the Clem, go uh, grapple him and the toggles off and she just, you know, snaps him into a, a chokehold and he's down and we move on. Well, speaking of complexity, one of the great complexities of this show is that there are commercials in between all of these separate segments. And if we listen to one, we'll hear another segment. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. The powdered wigs and the knee socks and also the buckles on the shoe tell us that we are in history. And therefore, if we are in history, if we look around, oh, we're also in a hut. And this hut, oh, there's a pretty famous uh, historical figure with an even more famous kite. Well, maybe the kite's not as famous as he is. But we are in the history hut at the behest of beloved and esteemed backer Gene Ha, who says, In 1752, Benjamin Franklin flew a kite in a thunderstorm to prove that storm clouds generate electricity. Immanuel Kant dubbed him the modern Prometheus. In 1790, John Adams wrote, Dr. Franklin's electrical rod smote the earth and outsprang General Washington, that Franklin electrified him with his rod, and thence forward these two conducted all the policy negotiations, legislation, and war. Maybe Adams wasn't joking. Was Dr. Franklin the real Dr. Frankenstein? Was America's modern Prometheus also Mary Shelley's modern Prometheus? Ken, this (laughs) seems like a question that you can answer. It does. Now, first, let's go to the document. That quote is from a letter to Benjamin Rush in 1790. And Adams says, when people write the history of the revolution, it will be a lie from one end to the other. 
And then he does the bit about Dr. Franklin's electrical rod. And he says, so he's doing a bit, he's doing a bit. And then he says, now people are going to say when they read this letter in a hundred years. And by the way, I love you, John Adams. I love you so much. When people read this letter in a hundred years, they're going to say, oh, John Adams was just being salty because no one loved John Adams. And in the letter, he says, no, I'm totally serious. George Washington's the best. Ask anyone. Ask anyone. I've said it a million times. I love George Washington. He should get all the attention. And as you read this, you're thinking you're doing an insufficient job of clearing yourself of the charge of saltiness, John Adams. <laughs> well, if something's got too much salt in it, add more salt. But but then he goes and he talks about Benjamin Rush's family, and it's a lovely letter. And John Adams is a beautiful man and a great founding father, and you just want to give him a hug. That said, Benjamin Franklin kind of a dodgy guy obviously founding father obviously our founding wizard it would be like britain being anti-merlin this is not a home for anti-franklin talk so a guy named charles curry has theorized that benjamin franklin was a spy for the hated british i hold no countenance with that benjamin franklin was a co-investor in a western land scheme with the hated british including all the hated british that were running Britain's spy services during the revolution. But does that make him a spy? I say it does not. Now, uh, he's also a Freemason. We know this. He becomes the Grand Master of Pennsylvania in 1734 uh, when he moves to Paris. Everyone's very excited that uh, Dr. Franklin is there. So he becomes head of a lot of uh, Masonic groups in Paris, including the Illuminated Nine Sisters, the Neuf Sures. Right. Now, that's a time you can't arrive in Paris as a celebrity and not wind up in three Masonic orders by the end of the evening. Exactly. That that's just how you do, right? You know, it's like, hello, this is the Countess of whatever. Uh, would you enjoy some chocolate? You're now the Grandmaster of our Masonic order. That's how it worked. Um, he was a mesmerist. Um, he, uh, like Mesmer, enjoyed passing his hands over young ladies. Mesmer used the glass harmonica, which Franklin invented in 1761 as part of his mesmeric equipment. And then once Mesmer falls out of favor with the sort of elite of France. Franklin joins in the investigation of 1784 and debunks him and blackballs him and says, it's nothing Mesmer is doing. Why, anytime you pass your hands over young lady, she might react that way. Or so I've read. In 1772, when he's living in London, he becomes the house guest briefly of a fellow named Francis Dashwood. And Francis Dashwood, in addition to being the postmaster general of England and one of the heads of British spy services, also is the founder of the Hellfire Club which was, depending on how you read it, either a satanic cult, a group of people who were radical Democrats and therefore had to get together under some other excuse to uh, hate on the king, and that's why people like John Wilkes were members of the Hellfire Club, or third, they just like having a lot of sex with whores, and I guess it could have been all three, frankly. But I, frankly, I do like the uh, thought, though, that they were just begrudgingly living the libertine lifestyle in order to throw people off the scent of their uh, democratic ideology. Yeah. I mean, again, it, I, I don't know that it's one or the other. Plenty of people have been attracted to antinomianism by the promise of ample sex. And I don't know why Francis Dashwood should be any different anyhow. So he's a member of the hellfire club. And so again, scratch your chin a little bit. And then he had a house in London when he lived in London between 1757 and 1762 and between 1764 and 1775, his house was at 36 Craven Street near Trafalgar Square. And in 1998, 
they dug up 15 bodies in the basement of that house. Eight adults and six children, the bones all in pieces by then. They showed marks of the saw and knives. Obvious Frankensteining. Obvious Frankensteining. Some of the skulls had trepanning holes drilled in them. So, yeah, Franklin is there. He's got his electrical kite. Uh, he's got his laden jars. He's got his mesmeric glass harmonica. He has all the equipment needed. The glass harmonica is practically the theremin that you need to, yeah, uh, build dead people into giant flesh golems, ideally to smite the hated British, but for really for any reason. I don't know if he necessarily built them for, um, uh, for prurient reasons. I believe that Franklin, you know, didn't need to build dead bodies, uh, for those reasons. He had, uh, his neighbor's wife, for example. His neighbor, a guy named William Hewson, who was a surgeon and an anatomist and ran an anatomical college. And, oh, look at that. I've fun ruined uh, our Frankenstein uh, basement. Logical explanation. Logical explanation. So what happened is William Hewson had an anatomy school. When you have an anatomy school in 1774. You just toss stuff over the backyard fence. Well, you, you've got to engage in grave robbing in order to have bodies to use in your anatomy school. And you can't rebury them. So you, as you say, toss them over the backyard fence, bury them under Ben Franklin's garden, and perhaps your wife distracts Ben Franklin while you're out there doing that. Who can say? <laughs> and we know that, this. That seems like a, an awful lot of subterfuge to go to to bury some bones. Well, I mean, they're, they're whole dead bodies first. I mean, you right. bury them and then they turn into bones by 1998. The way that people have nailed Houston as this guy is that Houston famously tried to reanimate a dead turtle by injecting mercury into its lymph nodes. And so he's, he was Turtle Frankenstein. He was Turtle Frankenstein. Turtlestein. Yeah. Or Franken-Turtle, I guess. And, and William Hewson um, experimented on these turtles. And sure enough, amongst the litter of bones in Franklin's basement, there are sea turtle bones with traces of mercury in them. So we're pretty sure that either William Hewson, as we mentioned, is burying his corpses in Franklin's garden or Franklin and Houston are, are sharing the garden for burial purposes. I mean, it could be a, a co-Frankensteining thing. Uh, he's collaborating with Houston in one way, at least, already, so why not more ways? Yeah, I, you know, there may have, may have been all consulting adults and sea turtles and so forth. Exactly. He's consulting adults, including the dead bodies, who would have consented if they'd known how scientifically important it was, I'm sure. So, in the 1930s, if uh, someone, say, in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, finds a hidden text... Uh, with not only sea turtle, but human anatomy in it. What is that going to do to our uh, Trail of Cthulhu characters? How is that going to draw them into a mystery? Well, one of the fun things about Benjamin Franklin is that he's canonically, or close to canonically, one of the people reanimated by Joseph Kerwin and his circle of necromancers is that they have, you know, the, the essential salts of BF. So they've reanimated Benjamin Franklin at some time in the 1920s. If Benjamin Franklin is wandering around in the 1920s, he's too smart to get caught when uh, Kerwin goes down. He sneaks out. And maybe in the 1930s, he's continuing his old researches. Now he knows you can come back from the dead. He knows there's stuff going on chemically. He doesn't believe all that bosh about Yogg-Zothoth, for, for goodness sake. But he knows there's something in it. And so perhaps he and his buddy Hewson are uh, out there trying to build some sort of immortal turtle as a test bed for their own, you know, uh, becoming fully fleshly immortal in the way that, you know, Franklin, again, now knows is possible because he's seen Hutchinson do it and he's seen Kerwin do it. So he would be in a situation where um, Benjamin Franklin 
is just the kindliest, most regretful, twinkliest necromancer that you ever did see in the 1930s. And I, I feel like it'd be great fun. There's also a uh, necromancer named G, and that's the only thing we know about him, in Philadelphia, who, as far as we know, never even caught. So Philadelphia, that, of course, Franklin's old stomping ground, maybe he's going to carry out an occult war against G, or maybe G is one of his many false names. I mean, Franklin loved to use pseudonyms and, and do hideouts. Maybe he'd laid down some sort of electrical pattern, like a John Murray Spear type thing in Philadelphia that he could then, you know, reanimate as G. Maybe that's where, you know, John Murray Spear remember, con- contacted Electrical Franklin to learn how to build Electric Jesus. Maybe that's what Electric Franklin was doing, was waiting around for the Kerwins to reanimate his body. And that's why you use mercury is because it can be more easily conduct the electricity in, in your corpse. I feel like the 1930s, once you've introduced Ben Franklin Necromancer, you really have no shortage of, of roads you can go down. Right. And if you've been briefly brought back through the essential salts method, I would think that you have to consume the salts of the living in order to keep going. So, it's canonical. They're vampires. They drink blood. That's how yeah. they go. So there you go. Well, we started out trying to make him Frankenstein, but we turned him into Dracula. Close enough, Gene, I hope. And uh, time for us to move on to another segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Preserve the artistic megastructure that is this podcast alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Jack Ulick. Mike Merles. Rich Ranallo. Jeremy French. And John Kingdon. The beautiful porticos of the museum lobby, the silver trays where the canapes and the champagne are being carried for the uh, reception tell us that we're once more in the culture hut, where we're going to examine a work of uh, high culture and see how exactly we can drag it down into the depths of nerdery. And uh, this time around, though, I guess we're not in the safe, weather-resistant lobby of a museum, but we're out in the out-of-doors near Las Vegas, because at the behest of beloved patron backer Tom Abella, we're going to see how many game ideas we can get from Michael Heiser's work, City. This is a monumental work of land art, I think the biggest one ever by by a huge margin, which is a work that uh, Heiser's been working on since 1970, has 
completed in quotation marks because I think all of his donors are saying, yeah, it's finished. And guys are saying, nope, nope, it's not finished. One one more bulldozer. Yeah, but it's finished enough that people can now actually go and see it and reserve tickets. So if you're Mm -hmm. in Nevada, this is a an amazing monumental piece that you can uh, go and explore. And uh, Tom is not wrong to suggest that certain genre images come to mind when you uh, take a look at it. Yeah, it's, as I said, a bulldozed mega sculpture. It's made of, you know, sand and rock and stone. And then there's concrete structures that are built into the sort of wide playa that he has dug. And for something that radically reconfigures the landscape is supposedly minimally invasive. That's just right. moving yes. things from the local area and and, you know, sand and stuff, stuff that wouldn't be missed. I'm sure, you know, no no species were endangered in the creation of this. That's why it took 50 years to make sure that the Garden Valley Warbler was safely moved. Uh, it's in Garden Valley, Nevada, which is not a town. It is a valley, and it's a valley between two other deserts. So it's way out of nowhere. Um, the closest town is a little uh, tiny bird called Pioche which is about 180 miles from Las Vegas. Anyway, it's about one and a half miles long, about a half mile wide. It's the size of the National Mall in D.C., roughly. It has, as I mentioned, these monumental structures made out of mostly concrete, but also some sand and and rock. Complex One, which is a big trapezoid structure that looks kind of like a burial mound. Complex Two, which is a triangular in shape, but sort of bent and, and twisted like a big if you made a snake out of triangles, it kind of looks like that. It looks like a barrow. And then there's one called 45 degrees, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, which is a bunch of right triangular concrete walls stuck up out of the desert to make cool shadows. And it sort of looks like triangle megaliths, if, if you think of that. You can find the vi- the visuals online. They're very striking. It's an enormous thing. It contains no walkways, no lookouts, no directional signs. There's no starting point. There's no ending point. You're meant to just wander around in it on foot. You can't drive a car. The guests numbers will be limited according to the guys who run it to six at a time. And they, uh, there's gravel lanes. It's 150 bucks to go out unless you're a resident of Lincoln County. I think that Michael Heiser may be gambling that none of his neighbors, he has a ranch in the area. None of his neighbors ever want to go. <laughs> so they're, you know, they're safe on that. Well, and it, it is cool that they're decide like having a whole bunch of people there all at once is going to completely change the sculptural aspect of it. And it's right. supposed it, it, to be it'll ruin the art, right? Yeah. A loneliness and the landscape instead of being about hundreds of people gopping and, and taking pictures and eating ice cream and stuff. So that's uh, uh, kudos for uh, realizing the extent to which other people looking at art ruins art. Yep. And the, uh, <laughs> and the, um, the whole thing cost about $40 million to make. Heiser started doing it on his own nickel, but eventually he got grants from big foundations. And now there's a $30 million endowment for something called the triple Ot foundation to run it. And that is run by, uh, the junk bond and private equity King Mitchell rails by the Getty family, by the Walton family of Walmart fame and by whoever runs the museum of modern art now which used to be the Guggenheims, but I don't know who it is now. I'm woefully out of date on my uh, social register. But anyway, this uh, little passel of billionaires said, let's build us a a city in italics because it's an art piece, not an actual city. They own plenty of real cities. And for a moment, Robin, I will say that my nascent populism sort of struck a note that there was $70 million have been plowed in, literally plowed into the desert here. And you know, you could do a lot of other art with that $70 million instead. But then I realized $70 million isn't a patch on what Marvel spends 
on, you know, the Eternals. And would I rather have City or the Eternals? I think that's a no brainer. Obviously, I'd rather have City. So maybe I was uh, just CGI is better for one thing. I, yeah, I was just being a Philistine briefly, but I, I wanted to cop to that Philistine right. instinct. And, and it's good that there's a an, an alliance of different well-funded groups so that if, you know, one group succumbs to bankruptcy, that the whole thing doesn't wind up, uh, you know, blowing over in the desert. Yeah, you'd, you'd hate to come back to City in 50 years and find that it's, you know, nothing but Del Taco stands or whatever. That would sort of right. ruin it. Michael Heiser says, I'm not here to tell people what it all means. You can figure it out for yourself, which is essentially like saying, if this was an essay, I would have used words. Right. <laughs> exactly. Art. Yes. Yeah. One of the other great things about land art is that, and as he says, there's no placards. So no MFA full of resentment for their uh, lack of, of promotion uh, gets to write about how the, the city is, is bad or wrong. It's just there. Well, well, they do. And also you can, any article on this, you'll find a bunch of art speak. It's just not yeah. posted on placards near the uh, thing. So our, our remit here though is to come up with a whole bunch of different game ideas. Mm -hmm. And uh, since I'm going to go first, the most obvious one is Alien Landing Strip. It's for the UFOs to uh, come down and, and join us, and let's hope they're benevolent. It is a uh, pneumatic signal code planted in Michael Heiser's brain when he was kidnapped by the great race of Yith. He has been impelled to recreate this pneumatic space. Do the aliens want it recreated? Do they not want it recreated? But it reveals mythos truths and its ratios and its uh, design and perhaps even its placement out there in the Nevada desert. It is lay energy offset for the damage done to the lay network by the existence of Las Vegas. <laughs> it is a lay accumulator built by a group of secret billionaires to finally enable themselves to master uh, the magical world and transcend uh, mortal existence with the rest of us plebes. Michael Heiser is a tulpa that we uh, project into being to explain the backwards chronological appearance of these ruins, which are really the beginnings of an entire civilization, which are appearing achronologically. They uh, existed in the future, and now they're being seeded in our time, and they're eventually going to overrun the planet. That is um, uh, the good idea version of what I was going to say, which <laughs> is that Michael Heiser did not build anything he excavated. City already existed. It was left over from uh, the great civilization that was destroyed when the Grand Canyon opened up, uh, probably reptile men, and he has only been revealing it and then cladding it with modern uh, concrete and things to make it look like it's a modern piece of art instead of an ancient ruin. It's a prison for a kaiju, which in 2024 is going to uh, rise from the Pacific Ocean. And uh, after the good kaiju defeats it, we will need to put the bad kaiju there in order to contain it. Uh, because, of course, the bad guys, you cannot be permanently killed, only imprisoned. It is a charging port for energy from the ether to be implanted into the Earth to resuscitate the Earth's sadly uh, failed lay network. And when the uh, ether ship comes by with the big hookup, that's when uh, the billionaires will charge the rest of us uh, a user fee. It is a, a message to the giants who hide in the Earth that is now safe for them to emerge, but unfortunately, the message has been uh, warped. So, that in fact, it's a trap in order for uh, people to capture the giants and gain uh, the secrets 
of their mega gold. It is a specifically designed engram, possibly in Aklo, meant to attract certain numbers of people with either some sort of alien or mythos connection, but when they see the city, they will be drawn to it, like uh, Richard Dreyfus in uh, Close Encounters. They will be drawn to it, and it is their minds that will complete the circuit diagram that the city has laid out. It is a trigger for an apocalyptic inbreak, and the thing that will finally cause this uh, worldwide transformation, this harmonic convergence, if you will, occurs if 99 people in the right frame of mind position themselves around it in the predetermined pattern, which is why it is normally restricted to six people at a time. It is the place that the Defense Department, which actually funded this, you're, you're an idiot if you think artists are going to spend $40 million on another artist's project. Uh, the Defense Department has funded this as a place to store Dracula or King Arthur or some other immensely powerful entity that they uh, plan to capture in a daring midnight raid. It is an art project, but it's an art project meant for interstellar beings to appreciate. And in fact, is just one of uh, 26 letters that spell out uh, what is essentially a very funny, dirty joke on different planets, approximately equidistantly across the Milky Way. And so that if you watch it from the right angle or with the alien version of the James Webb telescope, you get to read this really uh, funny, dirty joke and have a big laugh at the art establishment. It is a message to the future civilization, possibly Zothique, that will be able to read it and then travel back in time to help out Michael Heisler or billionaire uh, private equity King Mitchell Rails or somebody else with a big problem. It is a signal that future archaeologists will find so captivating they will send a time machine and uh, that's when the fun begins. And finally, it is the barrier that marks the end of this segment and prefigures the appearance of a commercial and then after that, yet another segment. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. It's time once more to venture into that most ill-defined of huts, the one sort of on the borderland between crackpotism and alternate history, but also oh, it must be UFOs, too, because there's the aliens sitting over in the corner, the gray alien, the Nordic alien, they're drinking kombucha. We look out the window, there's the alien big cat screaming on the moor. So surely this is the Elliptony hut, the hut where all of these other ill-defined things come together. And this time around, we're going to look at Skinwalker Ranch. Because it turns out, Ken, that there's a place where that is the Elliptony hut. It's the Elliptony ranch. Mm -hmm. Surely there's a hut at the ranch because every bit of Elliptony pretty much 
seems to be happening there. It seems to be kicking off. And in all places, you expect elliptony to occur in the boondocks, in the hinterlands, in the places where there are a few confirming witnesses. But uh, I'm not sure I would have predicted Untaw County in eastern Utah as being the place where UFOs meet Sasquatches, meet red-eyed entities, but uh, the Skinwalker Ranch has it all. It does. It is, as you say, in Winter Valley in eastern Utah. Even George Eberhardt's Geobibliography of Anomalies only mentions the 1978 UFO flap, although the Deseret News says that this is the culmination of 10 years of UFO sightings. A different ufologist has totted up 400 UFO sightings during that decade. I will just point out that there is a top-secret Air Force base, not a very far flight away from the Wintop right, so Valley. so the UFOs are all coming to look at the Air Force base. Exactly, that's what's going yeah. on. The ranch, just a big old ranch. It was a horse and cattle ranch. It was owned by the Myers family from 1934 to 1994, and then it was sold to Terry and Gwen Sherman in 1994, at which point stories began to pop up of vanishing and mutilated cattle, unidentified flying objects, and orbs, mysterious orbs, crop circles, poltergeist phenomena, Sasquatches, as you mentioned, other large cryptids with piercing red eyes that turned out to be bulletproof, or someone was not good at shooting cryptids, and invisible objects that emit destructive magnetic fields. And I think that may be my favorite one of all of this. And uh, the Shermans... We've not done a segment on invisible objects emitting destructive magnetic fields. Yeah. We've covered many of the others. And the Shermans, despite, or perhaps because of this litany of terror, uh, were able to sell their ranch to a minor magnate named Robert Bigelow, who made his bones with the Budget Suites motel chain and founded the National Institute for Discovery Science. Right. And I believe Budget Suites is where the hunters from Supernatural usually stay. They usually stay there, yeah. He's got that interest. He's got that market. UFO investigation and reverse engineering is the job of the National Institute for Discovery Science, and he got a lot of uh, former military people to uh, help run it. And I think, Robin, I feel like we've talked about Robert Bigelow's reverse engineering UFO project in another segment. Because I think this is sort of what the guy from Blink-182 got involved in somehow. I feel like these are all kissing cousins, if not the same entity. Whenever you get into a UFO thing, ultimately they do connect through the ufologists who who study them. Mm -hmm. uh, So, now, there is an odd thing about this story, uh, which is that the Myers family, who uh, owned it for 60 years, including during the 68 to 78 period during the height of the UFO flap, say that they didn't notice anything. Yeah, nothing ever happened. Particularly out of the ordinary. So what happened in 94, coincidental with the change in ownership, that would have caused this massive uptick in electronic activity? Now, um, a fun ruiner, Robin, of, of which stripe we re- reject. No, you can tell from the tone of my voice that I am not a fun ruiner. Right. Would say that Terry Sherman, who stayed on after Bigelow bought the ranch as the sort of uh, ranch hand supervisor caretaker, sort of had a, a, a rootin' interest in making up all those stories. And so you have a left-handed Scooby-Doo where rather than making up haunts to scare people away from your real estate, you're making up haunts <laughs> to attract rich UFO idiots to buy your real estate. And yes, sure he, enough, he throws off the mask and he's a 
Well, he's still a real estate developer. Estate guy, right? yeah. But he's a real estate guy who believes in ghosts and UFOs or wants you to. So, yeah, it's like he's hoping that Fred and Velma have a million dollars down. That's what he wants. This isn't a reverse Scooby-Doo. It's just a straight-up Scooby-Doo. Except he's not trying to scare people away from the property. I guess that's right. a reverse I, I said it's left-handed Scooby-Doo. He's trying Scooby-Doo. to attract people to property. Right. Okay. A reverse Scooby-Doo is a real monster. A left-handed Scooby-Doo is trying to attract people with monsters. Okay. And he flips it to Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow then, sincere believer. I'm sure, also manages to flip it to a new uh, real estate tycoon named Brandon Fugal in 2016, who buys it under the name of Adamantium Real Estate. So you can tell that Brandon Fugal is a serious uh, person who deserves a tie. And uh, basically, it's been bought to exploit for entertainment and UFO tourism purposes, I assume. Right. So all the roads to it have been blocked off. They've put up security cams. It's uh, descended into a sort of a, a fortress-like state right. as we wait for it to evolve into its full entertainment complex right. movie studio incarnation. And, and I'm sure Fugal looks at all the people driving to Roswell or to Area 51, Rachel Nevada, and says, why don't I get some of that driving in money and is building it out for that purpose? But that would be a fun ruining explanation. And I think what's more important, Robin, is uh, to understand why the Skinwalker Ranch exists only sometimes at the vortex of all elliptony and at other times seems like a perfectly normal thing. My thesis would be that the 400 UFO sightings were basically carpet bombing reality on the ranch and they were dropping these delayed reality destroying charges or reality opening up charges if you're a positivist. And the result was to basically seed all of these phenomena, seed the ground conditions for these phenomena, change local physical conditions to allow orbs and invisible objects emitting destructive magnetic fields such that they would then flower and blossom in, you know, 20 years. And that's standard UFO behavior. I'm sure I can come up with many, many cases of a UFO flap followed 20 years later by a seemingly endless farrago of elliptonic uh, phenomena. Right, because you very occasionally see like a, a Sasquatch UFO connection, and ordinarily you would not think that those two things go together, except there are some odd sightings of very Sasquatchy, like obviously alien beings coming out of UFOs. But the the sheer volume of this with, you know, your cattle mutilations, that happens anywhere there's cattle of course dude that's mm-hmm. ufo's got to go where or the mutilators yeah depending on where they are you know you got to go where the cattle is it's yeah. just like robbing banks no no point in cattle mutilating in you know chicago it's like right. we don't have any cattle you got to go right. to kansas or they're already you know well on the way to the meatpacking plant well they've been mutilated by the uh, meatpacking people whose job it is to do that although they don't do that here anymore but still and, and i do admire the you know the reality bomb is the only way that can explain you know, the extremely strange things, the, the, the animals with the piercing red eyes who've been aggressive to be shot at. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's trouble. So our scenario here is, I suppose, has to go maybe a, another little while later where the fictionalized owner of the fictionalized Skinwalker Ranch, they just basically wind up in development hell forever on this uh, amusement complex until the essentially the property remains fallow for years and years. Nobody goes there. And then you, the player characters, have a reason to have to go there and and penetrate what is probably the not so great security in order to enter the reality zone. And so you're you're basically breaking into the haunted amusement park. This is yeah. Scooby Doo, but again, a left-handed Scooby Doo. Right, but uh, in this case, left-handed and reverse, because of course this is a real reality disjunction right. that you're yeah. venturing into. So it could just be that this is 
what a reality gate really looks like, right? It's not, you know, this beautiful stargate sort of situation. It's just sort of a, a dusty patch of ranch, which periodically throws off something from one of its realities, right? It's a two-way gate. You don't want a one-way gate. You can't come back through it. Right. And so this is where your reality agents go in and come back out again. But occasionally, you know, there's, uh, and you know, there's security efforts to prevent it, but occasionally a red-eyed creature, you know, sneaks on through. So perhaps that's just, you know, this is just your portal to your other reality or your, uh, you don't want to be the outer dark, I don't think, because uh, we would all have been eaten long before then. But it's some other sort of, uh, you know, a, a messy portal, as they call it in the portal business. Yeah. And again, it could be a situation where Brandon Fugel or fictional Brandon Fugel is not a uh, cackling uh, wizard. He's a guy who thought he could run a UFO circus. And it turns out he's been basically poisoned by the unreality emanations. And you have a sort of a a cross between the zone from stalker and the sphere from annihilation. You've got this sort of space where nothing makes sense and you are going into it either in a story game because you're drawn to it by some crippling internal need or in a more procedural game, you're going there either to, you know, do the UXB and disarm these UFO reality bombs or, uh, in a slightly more cynical version, you're trying to find an unexploded reality bomb and then steal it out of the ranch so that you can sell it to the Pentagon or to uh, some good billionaire who wants to, uh, a Tony Stark type who wants to use it to, you know, harness anti-gravity and destructive magnetic fields and uh, and such things and, and make everyone rich. And, and the obvious midway thing is you're trying to prevent the wrong person from, from doing that. They've recovered right. the reality bomb mm -hmm. and you have to start out at the ranch in order to find your first clues. But the rest of the, the mystery takes you elsewhere. So that I rather mean, than in, in a, in a sort of a wild version of it, the, the bad guys have, have smuggled a reality bomb out of the ranch. You play a red eyed cryptid and a gray alien and a bunch of other things. And now you have to go out of the safe confines of skinwalker ranch to hunt down this stolen reality bomb because if it first of all if it's detonated in a populated area you got a million tulpas that's not right. good and then also it's not theirs it belongs to right. the you know zeta reticulans you can't be screwing around with that get it back right so in, in this version all of the strange things that are encountered actually the guardians yeah uh, that they obviously they're opposed to the ufos they didn't want the reality bombs to drop and they're Basically, they're doing reality bomb abatement, mm -hmm. and that's why maybe uh, sightings have dwindled over the years. And even in the less extreme version of that, where you're, you know, agents of uh, Delta Green or the Ordo Veritatis, or you're just uh, freelance mystery solvers, even if they're just humans who've taken a reality bomb, there's a certain amount of reality bomb leakage. Yeah, it's like you're carrying an A-bomb around, it's going to be radioactive. Right. So when you stop at the Budget Suites Hotel where you think they are, that's where you encounter the... Uh, the, the red-eyed animals. Mm -hmm. And the and the uh, poltergeists and whatnot. Yeah. And so along the way, the, you know, as they go along the trail, the, uh, the weird things that you have to dissipate uh, in order to, uh, and perhaps you could go full men in black on this and you would have, you know, reality guns that impose consensus reality on these uh, creatures or, you, you know, you just have to fight them in the good old fashioned way. Yep. And uh, figure out their uh, special means of dispatch. And, and in each one, the, the question is, do I stop and save this little town with the budget sweets in it from the uh, Mothman? Or do I keep following these guys with the reality bomb 
before they idiotically set it off in McLean, Virginia and make a million tulpas show up in the greater Washington, D.C. area. We don't want that. Right. Well, for something that overlaps on the Venn diagram with a bunch of other segments we've done in the past, we've got at least three campaign frames out of this. Well, that's the Skinwalker Ranch promise, Robin. Exactly. So I think it's uh, I think we can pronounce our work here done. We can slip out of this uh, podcast for yet another week. But uh, don't you worry. We'll be back a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast kite electrified by joining such learned backers as... Kevin J. Maroney. Louis R. Evans. Toonspew. Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover. And Michael Curtis. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest Mythos Rabbit design. Bunwich Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.